Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another of our quarterly mastermind investment shows. Joining me today is Manish Kataria from Invest Like a Pro and Adam Lawrence as well. So welcome both of you. It's uh, the last week of the year here, 2023. So I'm looking forward to all of our picks. How are you both? And do you want to give us a quick rundown of what's been going on on the investment front? So Manish, do you want to, do you want to kick things off? Yeah, sure. Hi, Rod. Hi, Adam. Hi, everyone. Yeah, so it's been a it's been a good 2023. Um, yeah, it's, it was a, ended up being a strong year. Um, and remember, this was in a year when inflation was at 40-year highs, interest rates at 15-year highs, recession expectations right at the start of the year. And actually, the US economy ended up, at the moment, it's running at 5.2% growth in its GDP. So no one would have expected that. So that's pretty amazing, given you know the backdrop. And uh, for companies and for stocks, yeah, profits are, you know, profits are surprising to the upside. And, and again, no one had expected that. So I, I guess the message is, you know, kind of ignore the predictions and the narrative. And, and the key thing is stocks, they always look forward, right? So when we are buying stocks, we are, we're buying profits. We're buying profits of the best companies in the world. And those profits are, are surprising to the upside, despite everything else around us. So, you know, this year, all the core global ETFs that I look at are up 10 to 20%. Specific sectors and stocks up anywhere between 15 to 50%. And I do a lot of options, as you know. So, you know, that's running at around 20% annualized at the moment. So it's going pretty well. One or two of my options investors are are up at 40, 50% for the year. So it's been a good year. Wow. And I think the point there is the economy is not the stock market and vice versa, which I think a lot of people kind of think, oh, recession, that means stocks are going to go down. And actually there's enough data there to show that there's probably actually, they're negatively correlated really, because it is looking at kind of, like you said, the forward projection and the forward earnings of what companies are going to give in the future, not necessarily what's happening right now. So I think that's uh, one to always kind of just remember when people are talking about recessions and the economy and all that kind of stuff. True. Adam, so what are your thoughts then? What Do you want to give us a quick roundup of, of where you, we've ended the year? Sure thing. So Manish has obviously covered the stock side with, with the, the skill that he always brings to the table. Um, I'll just talk a bit more about the property side of things. Um you know, a lot of commentators thought this was going to be a particularly down year in those markets. There were lots of people calling for double digit price drops, which seemed laughable to me. But the, the big theme that runs through it is how badly people have actually misunderstood what inflation is, what it does. And actually, the, the quantum of it in general, uh, as an example, I got told off for someone for saying that houses were cheaper today than they were in 2007 because house prices are up 40% since then, and inflation hasn't gone up that much. And it's up over 25% in three years. And actually, inflation since then is 64%. So actually, guess what? House prices are cheaper in real terms. And the point I'm making is inflation's done a lot of the work 
with a lot of this stuff. And it does. When you look at countries that experience hyperinflation, places like Argentina, places like Venezuela, you'd see giant increases in the stock market in nominal terms. Of course you do. Right? We obviously see depreciation of the currency and other things that come with that. And this is why this obsession that we have, apart from with GDP, interestingly enough, but this obsession that we have with nominal figures, it just it highlights how stupid that is when you go through a cycle of significant inflation, just like we've been through. So I think it's been a tougher year in the property markets because of the cost of debt. It's priced certain things out. There's no two ways about it. But it's also started to generate a lot more in terms of opportunity, starting to see that come through now. And I think there's a pretty silver runway for 2024, Rod. Mm, and certainly we talked earlier in the year when we were doing these kind of episodes about some of the REITs as well. And I've seen a lot of those REITs share prices have really rocketed up over the last kind of month or two. And I think that's quite interesting. Some of those that give off sort of these big dividends, eight, nine percent and, uh, and and share prices are now really liking that. I'll be interested to kind of hear about everyone's picks today. So if this is the first time you're listening to one of these investment mastermind sessions, what we do is we each pick a stock, a bond, an ETF, a financial product that anyone can invest in through the typical kind of investment platforms. And we'll basically explain a bit why we're choosing that. So it's not just property, it can be absolutely anything. But yeah, very certainly an interesting market. So shall we crack on with our picks? And do we have a volunteer for who's going first? Or shall I go? I mean, I can't, I can never remember who went first last time. So whatever, whatever you want, whatever you want. Okay, well, I'll go first then. Mine's a bit of a, could call it a bit of a cop-out one. Um, so I've gone for Vanguard do a lot of these life strategy ETFs. And I've gone for the their 100% equity life strategy fund. And what it does is it takes a all invested in equities. And what actually quite a few people don't realize is it has a home bias to it. So whichever country you're investing from, they'll actually have a bit of a home bias on that. So obviously, us being in the UK, they do put quite a bit of emphasis on UK stocks as well. So I think it's about 19% is in US equities, but also 19% is also in the FTSE All Share. And then they've got a little bit in the FTSE 250 as well. And then it's uh, kind of a breakdown of global stocks in various kind of funds across the board there. And I quite like this one. Like Every month, I kind of I pound cost average my way into this fund. I do like it as a fund. It rebalances all the time. And it's um, and I've, I've done pretty well from it over the years. Now, last year, it actually did okay. Well, sorry, this year, we're still right at the end of 2023. But it's done okay. And the year before, it had quite a big drop. And typically, after any year where it's had a big drop, the next few years are quite fast and, and, and heavy growth on the share price there. I do like it because it seems to be, it seems to me to be pretty overly weighted in sort of value areas like UK stocks at the moment, which do look quite on the value front. And so I'm quite liking that. It's also got a big kind of weighting, as you might expect, with most kind of global ETFs of, of the big seven in there as well, which any drop in base rate is going to help. So that's an interesting one. And also some developed countries, excluding the US and UK as well, which I think should be bouncing back 
quite well once going into sort of 2024. So that's my pick. It covers a real broad range of equities as well. And I do think it's a good one to be pound cost averaging your way into. So if you're sticking money in every month into an ISA or your pension, I do like this one. And yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts about it, uh, where, 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 you, where, you, where you're at with it. Can I just ask a quick question, Rod? How much is how, it? It doesn't have a particularly high fee or expense ratio, does it? It's very low. So, what does it cost? It's very, very low cost. So, the costs are. Let me have a quick look. Zero point two two percent ongoing. So, it, I make that point just because it's extremely important for people to understand when they, you know, there are wealth managers who've been in the news this year for charging exorbitantly high fees. And when they take lots of money out, whether they take it out at the very beginning or in terms of fluffed annual management charges, it can have a huge impact to the tune where because of compounding, it can be that they take 60 or even 70 percent of a pension's growth over a period of time if people are investing over long time horizons. So that was one point I wanted to make. The other thing I was going to do was just break down what pound cost averaging is just in case if anybody listening doesn't understand because it's such a powerful weapon that any of us can use and what it does is effectively what rod's saying is if he puts 100 pounds a month into this fund if it costs 10 pound for a share then he would buy 10 pounds he would buy 10 shares 100 divided by 10 if it dropped to i'm going to choose five because the maths will be easy even though it wouldn't drop that far but if next month it dropped to five his 100 pounds would then buy 20 shares and therefore, he's automatically, without having to think about it, buying more when the stock is cheaper or the ETF is cheaper and buying less when it's higher. So this effect over time can be very, very useful in terms of compounding and making sure that you effectively buy low, sell high. You'll probably only sell if you're rebalancing your portfolio. But it's such a simple and lovely concept that I think lots and lots of people should use if they can. So I just wanted to say that in terms of the actual fund itself, look, it makes loads of sense in terms of, you know, life strategy. People have all sorts of different thoughts. It's a bit like, you know, in property, they say, consider 100 minus your age as your loan to value. So I'm not sure what happens if you survive to 101. But, you know, so it's a rule of thumb, isn't it? Well, and there's a, go on. I was going to say an interesting concept on this. When I was speaking to someone the other day and they were talking about kind of they've got, their kids have got the junior ISAs. And they're saying what they're doing is they found a fund which they leverage US equities at sort of four times leverage because they say, well, they're not going to touch it for 18 years. And so actually over that period of time, yeah, let's, let's be a bit more risky over it. And I thought, oh, that's, that's quite interesting. Yeah. Guaranteed time horizon. Yeah, absolutely. Uncontrolled. Yeah, so their kids hopefully will thank them. I think the thing is, as the important bit to kind of caveat that is, as you get towards the end of that horizon, so if it's with a pension, you know, it, it's then with loan to value, you're looking at death. With the kids' ISAs, you'll probably be looking at their 18th birthday when they get to be in control of that ISA. You might well want to be a bit less aggressive towards the end because otherwise that extreme volatility, one bad year, you know, as managed was saying, this is this is a 20% year. You know, a bad year is a minus 15 or 20% year like it was last year. You don't want your last year to be minus 20% because you give up so much of your compounding. So you you tend to blend it through. And I think the, the life strategy fund can do that for you, can't it, Rod? Is that is that right? Yes, it can. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, I mean, Vanguard have a, a product called Target Retirement Funds. And yeah. what that does, it, it as you get older, it shifts your asset allocation towards bonds. 
And so if you're kind of close to retirement, you know, you might have most of your portfolio in bonds and it's all done for you. It's all automatically rebalanced for you. Just the other thing to add, I mean, Adam makes a great point on pound cost average, as Rod did. And just the other thing to add is, so stocks, you know, go up eight times out of 10 historically. So, you know, when things are going up, great. But when things are on the way down, it's a great time to be pound cost averaging. And, you know, you're buying stocks on sale. And that's when the power of pound cost averaging really kicks in. So, yeah, it's a really powerful thing for for anyone to be doing. And interestingly enough, actually, I know kind of managed was talking about the I think it was the S&P going up by kind of a, a large amount this year. Um, this fund ha- actually hasn't gone up by quite so much. It's about six percent, I think, at the mm-hmm. moment. And so I think that's because it's, it, it rebalances each year or each quarter, actually. It rebalances. And so it's been putting some money into some of those more kind of value areas of the world. So again, UK, a bit of kind of some of the ex-developing worlds as well, developing mm. countries, sorry. So I think that is interesting. And I will be expecting some good things to happen over the next couple of years from that. Right. I think the only comment I would say on this one, Rod, it's I like it. You know, it's you know life strategy. It's a great product. the The fact that it's got a home bias, as you mentioned, that's both for me. It's a, an advantage, but also a possible disadvantage. And one of the reasons it's underperformed this year is because it's had a a heavy weighting to the UK and, and the US has been the place to be this year. Not necessarily next year, but for this year. So when the US outperforms, this will underperform this year. So that's the only caveat to this one. But overall, I like it. Great. Okay. Who's who's up next? I'll go if that's all right. My pick is it's an energy ETF. So I still like the growth sectors. I like tech. You know, I like the sort of AI themes out there but i thought you know i just i was looking at the oil price it's underperformed this year so the xle is it's an energy etf it holds the biggest u.s oil producers like exxon and chevron so yeah it's geared to the oil price the oil price goes up the profits for these oil producers will also rise so it's sensitive to the oil price and i was looking at the oil price it's down five percent this year and XLE has underperformed this year as well. It's down 4 or 5% compared to the S&P, which is up 25 So this is more of a kind of a value play, which is lagged behind. If you look at its PE ratio, it's 7.8 times, which is the lowest in its 10-year historical range. It pays a dividend yield of 3.6%. So it's a value play. I don't really have a strong view on the oil price, to be honest. If the oil price goes up, this will outperform. But I guess this is a good sort of hedge to have in your portfolio because, you know, if we have some new issues in the Middle East, or if we have something going on out there, if the oil producers decide to cap their production, to increase the oil price, you know, this will, it won't take much for this to outperform. So, so yeah, that's my pick for, for this time, XLE, um, a value play, which uh, kind of goes quite nicely with all the growth stocks that I own already. And I think Warren Buffett just bought a lot of, I can't remember which oil company. Occidental it is, Rod, I think you're thinking of, yeah, yeah. Yeah, just, I think yesterday or the day before it came out, he'd done a lot of that. So clearly you're, you're on the, the same wavelength as him uh, managed, which is obviously a good thing. Got oil prices are down. There's no, interestingly, there's been something about wind energy and how it's just not cracked up to what everyone kind of thought it would be. 
and it's not producing enough, despite this being the windiest month I think I've ever <laughs> I've ever experienced in the UK. And I just think oil's going to be around for a long time, and it's certainly needed around the world. So I do think this is kind of a sensible one, and we are seeing very low oil prices at the moment, aren't we? Which is translating into cheap petrol. So, and again, going back to kind of what Adam said, in real terms, those prices are really, really low at the moment. Um, which I do think is an interesting one. So, yeah, I, I like this pick. I think it's sensible. I would just, I'd probably say, at what point would you sell it? At what price would you want to see that go up to? Because is this one that you're going to hold forever in your portfolio? Or uh, what's that kind of trigger? Yeah, that's a really good question, actually. I should have mentioned that. This is not a long-term play for me. So, you know, long, long-term. Yeah, I mean, oil will be around, but I'm not a huge bull on oil for, you know, over the last over the next five, ten years. So, yeah, I think this is probably a sort of six-month trade to kind of, you know, to capitalise on that value that that's showing right now. So if it put on 20, 25, 30%, you know, at that point, I'd probably be a happy profit taker and move on from there. Yeah, okay. That's sensible. I think that's important to, like, have that in your mind from the outset mm-hmm. when you are when you are buying some of these kind of investments where it's not something you might go, oh, I'm pretty sure I'll hold this forever or for 20 years because emotions can take over when you're seeing the price go up and down and it's difficult to kind of say something. So if you've got a plan that you start with, at least then you can kind of check back to what that was and, and hold yourself accountable and make those decisions. Adam, any thoughts on the selling? A couple of things on that, because it's raised a couple of things that I think are really interesting at the moment. Firstly, there's a fab documentary series that's on YouTube that's called The Energy Transition Crisis that probably takes one of the most balanced viewpoints, which really brings to life what you guys have just been saying. And it goes into more detail about nuclear and geothermal and other stuff like that, as well as oil. But I mean, totally agree with your comments around oil. And I understand managers' position because apart from anything else, the way that the ESG lobby has gone, the infrastructure for new oil production is is pretty crippled for several years. So it's still hard to see how people are going to, reinvest in oil infrastructure with confidence, which is what needs to happen. And I think that's really part of Warren Buffett's thinking with Occidental in that Berkshire Hathaway will invest because they know it it needs to. You know, Elon Musk said if he had a switch and he could turn off the hydrocarbons overnight, he absolutely wouldn't do it because it'd throw the world back into the dark ages. So that whole subject matter I find absolutely fascinating. And I, I like the the logic behind Manish's play because it's a it's a bit of a contrarian play. People bought energy stocks before the big energy pressures were on. Now they're out of favour, so they they inevitably almost certainly offer a bit of value. And that's what he's seen here, a good value play that, as he said himself, is happy to to take profit on. You know, I think there's there are also upside risks which are out there in the geopolitical environment, which he happily sort of exposes himself to a little bit here. And I see it as a bit of a one-way bet really, which has got to be, I think energy prices have come back a little bit more than most people thought they would. They've, they've come back a really long way, especially on the gas side more, but but nonetheless, the electricity is back a bit further than I thought it might be. So it probably seems like quite a good idea to be getting stuck in at this point. So I always like contrarian plays. So I think it's a good one. I like his logic. Good, good. Adam, what's your pick then? So I've gone with not quite as boring as the Vanguard, but nonetheless still fairly boring because it is an ETF. So I've gone for an international developed market small cap value fund. So 
That's too some good. of my. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the ticker. Well, I think the, the ticker is one of the longer tickers that I've seen. It was like six letters. What was it? ISVLTF or something like that. Um, so why? Well, I think apart from anything else, you'll you'll have heard a lot this year about the big seven and how they've massively outperformed and Nvidia's trebled and stuff like this. And then there's been a lot of chat until recent weeks where the market has really started to pick up, where it's been the case that the big seven were doing all the heavy lifting for the S&P. And I've been expecting, especially now that the yields have calmed down quite a bit, some of these small companies to outperform in in recent times. And although this fund is already up 16% this year, I still think it could have done a lot better. I looked at a lot of the U.S., small caps and value funds, and they were doing 20, 25% this year. And I thought, well, do you know what? International developed markets have underperformed the US for a decade or more. I don't think that's a permanent fixture. I think that's just outperformance in terms of lighter regulations in the US and the just the volume of quantitative easing apart from anything else. So I'm looking to take advantage of closing that gap a little bit. Why small caps? Because over time, goes back to the conversation we were just having, you know, small companies outperform larger companies by two or three percent. So I do see this as a long term play. And again, something ideal for pound cost averaging or value averaging, if you prefer. So the small cap side and then the value side. So this is stocks that are paying dividends. They're probably not very sexy if you look at them individually. It won't be household names, but they're delivering good value returns via the form of their dividends and the yields will be more than acceptable. So I'm expecting capital growth and yield here, the old cake and eat it style. And I think it offers a bit of value given where we're going into in 2024's world. So let's see. So in what environment, because I would have thought over the last, I don't know, 18 months, value would have sh- would have over outperformed everything else really. And it didn't. And so what, I guess, why didn't that happen? What do you need to see happen for it to fall? I think timing the market is hard. There's a, I read this fantastic piece years ago, which was all of these things where people had said, and going back to Buffett, his edge is completely gone. He can only deliver the market returns these days. And then he'd have a year where he'd do like 35% and the market would do 15% or something. And people would remember, you know, there is still some alpha there, even when you're swinging a, $600 billion bat around, you know, you can still get some some edge. So I do think in the same way that I like manage this play, there's a bit of a contra. You don't want to be buying this stuff a bit like the REITs when we were all talking about them six months ago, if that's when it was. This is the That's the perfect time to be buying. Yields look like they've passed their peak. It was before the last six months have played out. We've turned out to be correct for the moment anyway. And there's been a massive return on, on those. So at the moment, I see... I think people are right that value will outperform. I think they just struggle with timing. Mm-hmm. And timing is stiff. It's a bit like the uh, the recession's coming 2023. Well, it comes usually when the yield curve flattens out, when the yield curve's been inverted. And the yield curve hasn't flattened out yet anywhere near. So we could still be looking at, it's like predicting nine of the last zero recessions, isn't it? You know, There's always a metric you can find to predict one. So I think... What will we, I still like the fact it hasn't happened and I would be topping up, not relentlessly, but almost doubling down on the bet to say value will come back because there's 150 years of evidence that shows that value provides value in the long run. 
Sorry to interrupt this fantastic episode, but I just wanted to share some really exciting news with you. After a long time of wanting to be involved in a financial services business, I'm very pleased to say that myself and regular guest on the broadcast, Adam Lawrence, have bought into 978 Finance. We are a directly authorised FCA regulated mortgage broker who specialises in buy-to-let mortgages, commercial mortgages and bridging and development loans. I've been very passionate about finance for a long time and have been part of financing a lot of very complex deals, as well as your typical buy-to-let and commercial mortgages. 978 Finance focuses on the customer journey and embodies the pragmatic solution-orientated finance for each case that I absolutely love. It's got some very, very difficult financing deals over the line for me, and now I'm really pleased to be part of the business. So if you do have any new mortgages, refinances, bridging or development needs, please do get in touch with us. You can either contact myself or you can email simon at 978finance.com and we will make sure you're looked after. Let's get back to the show. Well, I guess, how do you define value then? Well, they define value. I'm talking about the stock market technical definition of value in terms of stocks that are yielding more than the average rather than a growth on the flip side, a growth stock, which would not be paying a dividend. The only appreciation would be in its capital gain. So this why has growth done so very well over the last 15 years or even 20 years? Well, it would be tech because lots of tech companies, Amazon being an incredible example of that, only ever a growth what didn't pay a dividend for 20 years. Shareholders are still very happy, although institutional shareholders not so much because you they often have obligations they need to meet every month and therefore they like dividends and they like cash flow. But of course they can buy a stock and sell it off a piece every every month or every week or whatever they want to do. Um, but they tend to prefer dividend yielding stocks as institutions. So that's the value definition I'm talking about here. Sorry. And the value for this ETF, they'll be looking at low PE stocks and uh, low price to cash flow, low price to sales, that sort of thing. That would, it would be a quantitative thing. And, and actually, just the question you asked earlier, Rod, the reason value hasn't performed so well over the last few years, because value stocks tend to be rate sensitive in economically sensitive. So if you look at this ETF and any value stocks, they're, you know, they're financials, industrials, energy companies, which we've talked about already. So they are all quite economically sensitive. And that's kind of the reason why value hasn't performed so well, because there was all of this expectation that we'll go into recession and the bond deals are going up. And now, you know, I, I like this pick because, you know, we've got a, an environment where bond deals are going down now, interest rates will follow, and that's going to play into the hands of smaller cap value stocks, which are economically sensitive, because they've got a bit of a relief coming through now, you know, with with interest rates coming down on their balance sheets, etc. So I think it's a great play for, you know, for 2024 to kind of complement all the growth stocks. Again, you know, I always say to people, be diversified, you know, don't put all your stocks into tech stocks uh, growth stocks you know have some value in there have some balance in there as well and i think this provides really good balance so i like it yeah and it's also balanced against the us because there's no us in this there's japan there's the uk there's europe but there's no us so yeah great pick 
And I guess a lot of the UK is seen as value at the moment because it's got a lot of banking, a lot of industrials, mining, things like that as well, on the val- or seen as being on the value side anyway for the moment, and in terms of its PE as well. Like that's mm-hmm. What go back to your inflationary points as well. You know, ultimately, when you look at the FTSE from an inflation adjusted perspective, it really puts a lot more colour around it rather than the number being 70, 7650 or whatever it is right now. And so, look, we've talked a bit about value and kind of the rates and inflation. Where do you see inflation going at the moment? Because we're seeing it jump down a bit. I know Adam will have a lot to say on this probably. Manish, if I come to you first. What do you think that's looking like? Are we past the peak? Is it going to be kind of rocketing down to the 2% that the Bank of England wants in the next 12 months? Or are we going to, is it going to be stickier than that? And what do you want to, what do you think you need to see in the macro environment for it to actually come down and stay down at around that 2% mm. level? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, Direct answer to your question. I think it will come down a little bit more. Most of the sort of declines we've seen, the biggest part of the declines we've seen this year. And and if you look back now, actually, it was fairly easy to see because what inflation is, it's just a year on year comparison, right? So we kind of just need to have an idea where prices were this time last year. So when Rishi Sunak kind of made his kind of prediction and his targeting of halving inflation, you know, A, he didn't really have much to do about that, right? And he was just looking to see, he was looking to see where prices were this time last year. So it was a fairly easy prediction to make. So we've seen that because, you know, this time last year, you know, the comparison was quite high. So easy comparisons now. I think those comparisons will be less easy in 2024. So we'll still see a bit of a decline. We're not going to see another halving, you know, very, very quickly, I don't think. Was it going to take for inflation to really kind of stay down? I think core inflation and, you know, wages underlying inflation, you know, excluding food, energy and all of these things. I think if that can calm down, which it will, but it will take some time for that to happen, which is why I don't think inflation, headline inflation is going to drop very, very quickly from here. So we might get, I don't think we'll get down to 2% this this year coming. I think it will be a slow process from here on. I do think energy is going to play. I know we sometimes say to take out food and energy costs, but I think energy costs are such a big kind of thing that has so many knock-on effects as well to all other costs. I think it's so important. And, and as we've talked about, I mean, you're picking that energy stock, energy ETF for a reason because you think those prices are probably going to go up. So I tend to agree with that as well. And I do think that will obviously have a bigger impact on inflation as well, keeping it higher for a bit longer. Would you tend to agree with that? Or I think we're all on the same page here, pretty much. I think the risks remain to the upside. I think managers said some very good stuff. Remember, core's still 5.1 and services inflation, which is 47% of CPI ultimately, is still 63 And then I keep harping on about this, but ultimately what the Chancellor has put into the autumn statement, 9.8 in minimum wage, 8.5 in pension, 6.7 in index linked benefits. These are not rates that are conducive with a 2% inflation rate, gentlemen. And, you know, the USA are way ahead of us in this economic cycle post-COVID because they took their medicines much more quickly, as they tend to do. And their core is is still 4%. That core has not come off. So, I think that where this translates through into things of real interest is ultimately all these people who are seeing four, five, six rate cuts next year, 
I don't know if they're looking at the they're looking at CPI. They're seeing a trend that they want to see, and they're kind of being a bit hopeful here. So I still think there'll be reasons to keep rates in the shaker above the natural rate, which is potentially around three and a half to four percent as we speak at the moment although it has a longer-term future of being lower, I think there still needs to be a tightening on the break of the economy. Um, and I think that that will have to remain. And I agree with management. I don't know that we'll see 2% next year. If we did, we may well see a quick V upwards. If that was to crash quickly in, in the first part of next year, which I don't think it will, I think when we get to April, May, we're going to see this extra money filter through into the economy. And savings rates are still quite high. You know, They're still around the 10% mark. Whereas if you went back to 2019, they're around the 5% mark. So people are saving twice as much in percentage terms of their incomes as they were back then. So you can still tell that they're also still a little bit nervy and they're not deploying that capital. Now, will they in an election year? Not necessarily, but I still think we could see quite a boom. I think you'll see another summer next year where people want to get abroad and there'll be big spending and travel is one of those things that's gone up a lot more than the rate of inflation has ultimately. Although some of that, of course, is linked back to the oil price, but not not a huge amount, um, but a certain amount anyway. So I largely in agreement with you two. I struggle to see just two big drops, one of them which was mathematically guaranteed because of what happened in October 22. Do not fill me with enthusiasm that inflation suddenly magically under control. I really don't think it is. Well, I think just to add to that, I mean, I always say this to people that, yes, there's two rates of inflation. One is the official rate and one is actually the reality rate which we see in your day-to-day spending you see that the reality rate is much higher and if anyone wants to kind of get some data behind this there's a really good website called shadowstats.com where it's an ex-economist who monitors you know the real rate as defined by previous sort of calculation methodologies so it's worth having a look at that yeah, because some of the calculations they use are a bit iffy for like the, when they're looking at cars, for example, yeah. and the price of cars. They'll look at, well, how much are windows that go up? And they go, well, now yeah. we've got electric windows. So we can't add that in because there used to be roll up windows. So there are a lot of arbitrary things that go yeah. on. But I, I do like the idea of using Visa or MasterCard spending as an as an alternative proxy because it takes out some of those concerns and that was interesting to watch over the the period although again doesn't make the headlines anywhere near as much as it should do but i think it's a pretty good pretty good yardstick really superb well thank you both very much for that and hopefully we'll be on here in a couple more months for the first quarter of 2024 and manish do you just want to say a little bit about invest like a pro and what you're doing there Sure. Yeah. Um, so I, I teach people how to how to invest. A lot of the stuff that we talk about, uh, I teach people how to put together portfolios in a structured way, in a step by step way, kind of setting up their portfolios. Because running a good portfolio isn't just about making good investments; it's about having the right setup. So, so yeah, we talk practically implement things like pound cost averaging, which we talked about, core ETFs, low cost investing low tax investing, all of those things. And, and we talk a lot about options. We we learn how to trade options, which provide amazing income opportunities anywhere between one to three percent per month. So so yeah, that's uh that's it's always a popular thing. And and it's great for property investors. I have a lot of property investors who come along to learn how to diversify alongside property. Brilliant. And Adam, do you want to mention the boardroom club that we do as well? 
Absolutely. With absolute pleasure, Rod. So we've been running the Boardroom Club for three and a half years now. We're going into fourth, uh, well, it'll be our fifth calendar year, actually, won't it? We have up to 12 businesses on board, for which Rod and I act as your non-executive directors. So what does that look like? Well, we have a day every month, the second Wednesday of every month. We do three face-to-face meetings a year, and the other nine meetings are run on Zoom. You get a 40-minute slot whereby you prepare a board report for us. And all of this is on the back of a strategic plan that we design together, the three of us, for the next 12 months. So we design the plan. And then also we have a mid-month call with Rod or myself. We alternate that month on month. So you get to mix it up a bit. And we spend 30 minutes, 45 minutes, whatever time you need, really, on discussing anything else that you need to check in on what's going on. And also, quite often, people use that to talk about specific deals or problems that they're facing there and then they need a quick answer for. We're also available on WhatsApp, but it's not 24-7-365, and it would be it would be unfair to say it is. But I must say, all the people who've been through the club have been extremely respectful of the fact. We've obviously got limited time because the other 90% of the time we're spending running our day-to-day property investment and development groups, uh, respectively. So there's a lot to think about there for us, but it's great fun. I'll be honest, it's my favourite day of the month. Rod often says... It's a bit of catharsis for us because it's always easier talking about other people's problems rather than our own. Um, but we we genuinely get a lot out of it, enjoy it. Obviously, there's a great and powerful network there. And we've even had a couple of business ventures that have span off the side of it, which obviously is, is even more of a bonus for everyone involved. So if anybody's interested listening to this and uh, interested in having a chat about the club, drop me a message on LinkedIn or drop Rod a message and we'll have a, a no obligation chat about it quite happily. Brilliant. Thanks, both of you. And yeah, we'll be in touch in a couple of months. Thanks, Rod. Thanks, Manish. Cheers. Happy New Year to you. Thanks, Adam. Happy New Year. Happy New Year.